This time on Mega Bluster. Greasy Fast Speed! Mega! This is Mega Bluster, an exhaustive examination of the Mega Man franchise. I'm Stefan. This time around, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, released in Japan on November 21st, 1992 for the Sega Mega Drive, and on Tuesday, November 24th, 1992 for the Sega Genesis. Over the course of this project, I have deviated from the core series of Mega Man games. When I felt that doing so helped establish context for what was happening in the franchise, or when I saw an opportunity to dive deeper into the works of key figures in its evolution. Specifically, I've looked at Takeru's Kokoron and Little Samson. Yet with today's episode, I'm going further afield than ever before. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is not a Mega Man game in brand, or in spirit. At the time of Sonic 2's release, the ethos behind both series stood in opposition to one another, and their mechanics, aesthetics, and appeal differed wildly. Yet as Mega Man moves from the relative safety of 8-bit consoles to the exciting but dangerous world of 16-bit consoles, we can't not talk about Sonic the Hedgehog 2. It's not just because Sonic 2 is one of the quintessential culture-defining games of its era, but also because the philosophical impact of Sonic 2 was so great that even top-tier games published on the Super Nintendo could be read as a response to it in some sense, including Donkey Kong Country, Yoshi's Island, and Mega Man X. Sonic 2 is one of the games that counted in the first half of the 1990s, and by examining it, we will establish critical context for understanding both the principles Capcom would apply when creating Mega Man X, and some of the challenges the series would begin to face as 16-bit consoles gave way to 32 and 64-bit ones. Any conversation about Sonic 2 must begin with a conversation about Sonic 1, its predecessor. Yet I don't wish to belabor that point. Sonic 1 represented a phenomenally successful act of marketing on the part of Sega, and specifically Sega of America. And the game makes a remarkable first impression with its now iconic opening stage, Green Hill Zone. Yet the remainder of it is a mixed bag at best, stuck in a strange middle ground between the high-octane action Sega marketed and some surprisingly demanding and frustrating platforming that often grinds the game to a halt. As an experience, Sonic 1 feels like a rough first pass at an exciting new concept, 
But the concept was so exciting that the game became 1991's best-selling release. Per Wikipedia, which, you know, take with a grain of salt, it has sold nearly 24 million copies since its original release across several different platforms. It was a bona fide hit, and a sequel was inevitable. But remember, this was Sega in the 1990s, and even when something was inevitable, that didn't mean it was going to be easy. The surprisingly complicated development history behind Sonic 2 begins with a question of paternity. Three men are generally credited as the driving forces behind Sonic 1. Artist Naoto Oshima, designer Hirokazu Yasuhara, and programmer Yuji Naka. Of the three, it's Naka who has most publicly attempted to claim the title of the father of Sonic the Hedgehog. In the 1980s and 90s, Naka was highly regarded as one of Sega's technical wizards. Yet he quit the company after the original Sonic's release due to a pay dispute. Although he was quickly hired by Mark Cerny's Sega Technical Institute in the United States, his immediate departure from Sega of Japan contributed to a schism inside of the company and in Sonic's history. Oshima chose to remain in Japan and work on a Sonic sequel for the upcoming Sega CD add-on, while Naka's splinter group went to work on a proper Sonic the Hedgehog 2 for the Genesis. Joining Naka were Yasuhara, composer Masato Nakamura, and artist Yasushi Yamaguchi, among others. Nakamura in particular is a critical figure spanning both games, and his non-Sonic career includes his work with the highly successful Japanese pop band Dreams Come True. Oshima sallied forth with his own team, whose work we will not be discussing further, because this is a Mega Man podcast, not a Sonic podcast, and in the context of Mega Man, Sonic 2 is the one that matters. Sonic had multiple fathers, Yet, in the public eye, Yuji Naka is the man who has most aggressively claimed credit for its success. Some of this is due to what Sonic was. Fast, technically impressive, built to show off. Naka, the sports car enthusiast responsible for the actual engineering behind the game, had a strong claim to the brand. It was his. A workaholic with an abrasive reputation, he fit the standard cultural template of the creative visionary who could deliver. But most of all, Naka became the father of Sonic, because he claimed the title publicly. Naka formed Sonic Team, a studio inside of Sega whose major claim to fame over the intervening 30 years has been its inability to develop a good Sonic game. Naka's time with Sega is long over. Today, he is a convicted criminal serving a suspended sentence for insider trading. But in the 1990s, he was one of two men, the other being Yu Suzuki, that Sega put forward as its answer to Shigeru Miyamoto, not realizing that its true answer to Miyamoto, Toshihiro Nagoshi, was still flying under the radar. Now, it's tempting to draw some parallels between Naka and Mega Man's Keiji Inafune, but I don't think that's a fair comparison to Inafune. Inafune would come to publicly be known as the father of Mega Man, 
but he always seemed uncomfortable with that title, right up until he needed it to finance his own independent game. In interviews, he would often try to share credit with Akira Kitamura, his mentor. And whatever his flaws, Inafune is not yet a convicted felon. Naka is a complicated figure, but in 1992, his legacy had yet to be written. He was just a programmer. And it was his job to follow up Sega's greatest home console hit with something bigger, better, and capable of single-handedly holding off Nintendo's nascent Super Nintendo Entertainment System. It is to his credit, and his team's credit, that he came about as close to pulling it off as anyone could. Sonic 2 is an exercise in iteration, taking what worked about its predecessor and stripping away what didn't. It's a game with a sense of focus and clarity, avoiding the accumulation of cruft that will weigh down most Sonic games after its incredible follow-up, Sonic 3 and Knuckles. There are three essential elements to Sonic 2 as a game. Breakneck speed, branching paths, and optional co-op. Although retrospectives typically focus on the first, and Sega of America's marketing places a heavy emphasis on it, my personal experience with the game was impacted much more by the latter, too. We'll talk about all three in turn. First, speed. Sonic 2 leans into speed in two ways. First, it introduces the spin dash function as a means of rapidly building up speed important in situations when the natural accumulation of momentum may be difficult. Second, it streamlines level designs across the game to reflect the more enjoyable portions of its predecessor. Think more Green Hill Zone, less Marble Zone. There are still points where the game deliberately places obstacles in your path to halt your momentum but it's usually more than willing to let you move from left to right and feel powerful doing it. More than any other, this is the game I would blame for the association of Sonic with the gotta-go-fast mentality, which would prove to be more of a liability than an asset when the series transitioned to 3D at the end of the millennium. But here, in a world of blast processing and easily reusable tiles... It's an asset beyond compare, and one that few competitors really had the ability or the interest in matching, at least initially. Nintendo's platformers were slow by comparison, whether due to hardware optimized for different experiences, or a software design philosophy that was increasingly emphasizing depth of experience over raw thrills. Now that's not to say Sonic 2 was an adrenaline rush without replay, though. On the contrary, this was a game that relished in offering the player multiple routes through each level. Although levels proceeded sequentially one to the next, there were multiple ways to navigate each, each reachable and navigable based not on search, discovery, and power-ups, but rather on player skill and speed. These routes gave the game its replay value. 
while a player might make it through a stage relatively slowly on a lower route. Mastery of the game's mechanics will unlock different, faster, more challenging paths. The better you got at Sonic 2, the more likely you were to discover a different experience that, upon reflection, you might recognize was available to you all along. Although Sonic 2 never hooked me personally in the way that, say, Super Mario World did, I do remember putting time into mastering some of the earlier stages. My skill, or patience, proved insufficient to sustain high-level play, but my deficiencies as a gamer should not be read as an indictment of the game. Of course, if you were game-deficient and happened to have a friend or younger sibling around, there was more juice still to be squeezed from Sonic 2, thanks to its most curious addition. Sonic 2 most famously introduced the first installment in the Sonic and His Stupid Friends collection, with arguably the least stupid friend, Miles Tails Prower. What's curious about Tails is that in most scenarios, he has at best a negligible impact on the gameplay, and at worst he actively hinders your progress in the game's special stages. He follows you everywhere, but does nothing to aid you in your quest. Yet he's given the weight and substance of a player character without really being one. Except that he is one. Anyone who plugs a second controller into their Genesis finds that, without any fanfare, Tails is a fully playable second character. While the game remains centered on Sonic, Tails can be controlled at any point. And although the game moves too fast for this to really matter at most times, it can be incredibly helpful during boss fights. Tails is indestructible, and if used strategically can wipe the floor with bosses while Sonic hangs back and taps his foot impatiently. Think of Tails as Kid Brother mode, except your kid brother in this case is a magic invincible fox and not a drag on Taken in isolation, Tails represents a subtle expansion of Sonic's potential as more than a left-to-right single-player experience. Taken as a piece of a greater whole, he represents the first hints of an expanded world beyond the scope of the original game's core, one whose greater exploration would lead to a series of increasingly questionable entries that culminated in a remarkable brand collapse. Surely this bears no relevance to the topic that this particular podcast series is devoted to exploring. So why are we talking about Sonic the Hedgehog 2? Well, if Sonic 1 was a mission statement, Sonic 2 was a real mission-accomplished moment in basically every way you might be imagining right now. Its influence on the gaming landscape was monumental at the time. We can say with confidence that there would be no Bubsy without Sonic 2, and who knows where we would be without Bubsy. But in the context of Mega Man, the key legacy of Sonic 2 was speed. Successful platformers in the 16-bit era would fall into one of two categories as they built atop the sturdy foundations laid by their 8-bit predecessors. They would either create a deep world designed for exploration and discovery, like Super Mario World, or they would build a fast world 
designed for repeated rapid playthroughs with an emphasis on reflex and mastery. As Capcom prepared to bring Mega Man to 16-bit consoles, it had to make a philosophical decision about whether to use the added power available to it to go deep or go fast. This choice would impact every aspect of the game they made. As we will see soon, Capcom chose to go fast rather than deep when it moved to the Super Nintendo. On almost every level, though, this is the choice we would expect it to make. Iteration in the Mega Man series has almost always been about the move verb, not the shoot verb. And while Capcom could have chosen to deviate from that pattern if it had wanted to, to do so wouldn't have been in the company's nature at the time. Capcom, as much as any video game company of its era, committed hard to a particular franchise's type of game once it had found it, rebuffing reinvention and embracing iteration. Street Fighter II's various versions, Ghosts and Goblins sequels, and Mega Man's parade of follow-ups reinforce the notion that at this point in time, Capcom wasn't interested in reinventing any particular wheel. The wheel was good, let's roll with the wheel we've got while we've got it. If Capcom had a new idea, they'd make a new franchise to carry it forward. But they weren't about to reinvent a series if they didn't absolutely have to. And the truth is, with Mega Man, they didn't really have to. The success of Sonic 2 showed Capcom that 16-bit consoles were well-suited for straightforward platformers that emphasized speed. And that learning was well-matched to the franchise character they already had in Mega Man. With a little more attitude, and a little more in-your-face aesthetic that emphasized anthropomorphized animals, maybe Mega Man could grab some of that sweet, sweet Sonic money. It was worth a shot. It wouldn't be until years later that Capcom decided to radically change the franchise's formula. And by that point... Well, we'll get to it when we get to it. For now, though, let's say goodbye to Sonic the Hedgehog 2, the game that showed the world that Sonic wasn't going to be a flash in the pan. The game that spawned a thousand crappy animal mascot characters that haunted us through the end of the millennium and beyond. And the game that established, rightly or wrongly, the standard by which blue-colored mascot platform characters would be judged going forward. Thanks for listening to Mega Bluster. Music in this episode was sourced from ocremix.org. You can find links to the original compositions in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or in the podcatcher of your choice. If you didn't enjoy this episode, please give it to someone you don't like and lie to them about what it is. We'll be back soon with the next and final entry in our Mega Bluster Gaiden series, Breath of Fire. <laughs>